You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Hello, fellow listeners of Ancient History Fangirl. I'm Lantern Jack, host of a podcast called Ancient Greece Declassified. Simply put, my show is about exploring the most interesting legends, ideas, mysteries, larger-than-life characters, and watershed moments from ancient Greece. In every episode, I speak with a world expert in ancient history or archaeology about their most exciting research. We debate issues like, how did the Greeks defeat the much larger Persian Empire? Did Aristotle have more bad ideas than good ones? And what caused the simultaneous collapse of the Bronze Age civilizations? If any of these topics pique your interest, then take a moment to check out Ancient Greece Declassified wherever you get your podcasts or at greasepodcast.com. And now, back to Ancient History Fangirl. The Italian peninsula was a pot waiting to boil over. Dionysus comes to you in your dreams. He has always been with you. From childhood, you felt his presence. You have never been alone. Even when your mother died, when your father went off to fight in Mithridates' wars, you knew your god was with you. You could feel him in your bones. When they took you from your temple, they thought they could take Dionysus from you. They thought that your god lived only in the stone halls of his sanctuary. But they were wrong. He is everywhere and he is always with you. You had never been further than the river at the bottom of your village's mountains, never seen the sea before. Now you have seen enough of the sea, enough of the unbroken flat sky to last you for years. When you met him, your handsome gladiator, you weren't sure Dionysus would approve. You prayed to Dionysus to give you a sign. You waited for what felt like ages, and then the dreams began. Dionysus has always spoken to you through snakes sacred, beautiful conduits between the worlds. In your dreams, you see the future. You see the blood, the death, and you wake up afraid because there is so much darkness and your gladiator comforts you. His arms are strong and sure. In the Ludus, this school of gladiators, of rough men, he is gentle. 
You did not expect to care for him, but you do. He is a dangerous man, a man who dreams of home, of Thrace, of the mountains you both grew up in. He is a man who wants more, and who isn't afraid to take it. You beg him to have patience, to wait for a sign. The other men in the Ludus won't follow him. The risks are too great. The rebellion he speaks of carries too high a price. But if he can just wait a few more days, you'll have your sign, and you'll make them follow him. Because when Dionysus speaks, everyone will listen. Everyone knows Dionysus. They might know him by a different name, but everyone knows Dionysus. Everyone will follow his orders when your god finally gives you a sign. And when he does, when you see the snake curled up by your lover's head, you know exactly what to tell the others. You have the words that will unite them all, the words that will begin a revolution. I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. We're both Spartacus. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we finally got here. (laughs) You know what? We decided to celebrate this point in the day. It's brunch time for me. It's about six o'clock for me. (laughs) Booze o'clock for both of us, basically. So we both brought an entire bottle of Prosecco to this party. (laughs) The rest of our entire day is going to depend on how much of this Prosecco we consume. So good luck to us. (laughs) Yes, wish us luck, everyone. Godspeed to Ancient History Fangirl. (laughs) So today we're celebrating because we're finally, after an entire season, getting to sink our teeth into the story of Spartacus and his rebellion against the Roman Republic. To be clear, this is after three episodes on Dionysus, two episodes on the Thracians, two episodes on the First and Second Servile Wars, one episode on Spartacus and popular culture, and two episodes on gladiators. That's right. So this is what it took to get to the story of Spartacus. And we hope that you guys have enjoyed what we've given you to lay this groundwork because we do think it's all important. And if you don't, and you're just joining us here because you see Spartacus in the title, hello! Well, hello. (laughs) (laughs) You have a lot of binging to do to catch up. That's all. And that's great because we're a podcast that comes out every two weeks. So in between, you can go listen. To say, Jenny, that I have been counting down this day since we started writing and recording this season is a massive understatement. Since I was a kid, I've been enamored with the story of Spartacus. I've always loved stories of revolution. And Spartacus's rebellion has everything. Love, betrayal, pirates, victory against impossible odds, kicking upper-class Roman asses, redistribution of wealth. I mean, I don't want to tell you the ending. But the story of Spartacus is so much more than an epic legend. It's the story of the Roman Republic at a crossroads. In order to understand why Spartacus was so successful and how his rebellion worked, we have to understand what was happening in Rome, Thrace, and the ancient Mediterranean world that allowed a hero to rise. Rome in the 70s BC was a dangerous place to be. The Italian peninsula had been ravaged by the civil wars, the Sulla and Marius wars, just over a decade ago. But just before the civil wars, there was the social war, and this war changed the landscape of the Roman world. The social war, which lasted from 91 to 88 BC, destabilized the Italian peninsula. It's easy to picture the Italian peninsula during this time as a place just occupied by Romans, but that's not actually true. Italy was a place filled with diverse tribes of people. The Etruscans were one, others included the Sardinians, the Rituli, the Ligurias, the Sicani, the Corsi from Corsica, the Samnites, and many, many others. 
Some were far more ancient than the Romans, and a few spoke languages that had been in Italy long before the spread of Indo-European languages like Latin. As Rome grew and expanded, it conquered its neighbors, and by 91 BC, the non-Roman Italian tribes had been allied to Rome and fighting alongside the Romans for about 200 years. They paid Roman taxes, and their men died in Roman wars, but they had not been granted full rights as Roman citizens, and this did not go over well because the Italian tribes wanted a piece of that sweet, sweet democracy they'd been hearing so much about. But the Romans did not want to share, shocker. They did not want their allies and neighbors to have a vote in Rome or the equality that allegedly came along with citizenship. This led to a deadly war that lasted three years and devastated the Italian countryside. Rome won the war and wound up granting the Italian tribes citizenship anyway, but this was not a victory for the Italian tribes. Their lands and cultures and people had been decimated. So many people were killed among so many Italian tribes that their cultural presence on the island was vastly reduced, and a uniform Roman language and culture rapidly spread throughout the peninsula, replacing ancient tribal cultures, languages, and loyalties. In short, the Italian tribes got their vote, but they lost so much, their own people and their own identity. And because this was a civil war, the mess from the two armies marching across Italy and warring left vast scars on the land. Over 100,000 died in the social war, and their loss was keenly felt. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. After the Social War, Rome experienced another period of deep unrest. This time, it was in the form of the Civil Wars, or the Marius versus Sulla grudge match. We talked a lot about the Civil Wars, which lasted from 80 to 81 BC in our Julius Caesar series. So here we're just going to hit the highlights. So the Civil Wars started pretty much immediately after the Social Wars ended. Marius and Sulla were two Roman generals. Sulla started out as a protege of Marius and developed a grudge because Marius didn't give him enough credit for his victories. And this is a vast oversimplification. We're just giving you the bare bones of what you need to know. In the end, after two wars and almost a decade, Marius's faction lost and Sulla took control of Rome with an iron fist. He wiped out the democratic system entirely and became a dictator. And then he enacted a series of bloody prescriptions where people he didn't like or who had taken Marius' side in the civil wars found their land, wives, and wealth being redistributed to Sulla's friends. And shortly after that, they would die because Sulla had this list of people that he wanted to see murdered. And if he went out and murdered someone on that list and brought Sulla the head of that person as proof, you got to keep your victim stuff. So a lot of people did this. And the city of Rome itself and the Italian peninsula were racked with violence. And these bloody prescriptions gave rise to a new period of uncertainty and terror. After the civil wars, Roman aristocrats on the winning side went on a land grab in the countryside, which had been depopulated by all this war. They bought up land and formed a lot of fundias, industrial-level agricultural estates that produced inconceivable wealth for their 
mostly absent owners. Any small family farms that remained couldn't compete with this new way of working, and they began losing their farms. Many had no choice but to sell their farms and land to the aristocracy, probably for a lot less than they were worth, and this left the farmers impoverished and homeless. Some farmers were allowed to stay and work the land they used to own for their new wealthy landlords in a situation that kind of feels a little bit like tenant farming. So this fueled a massive wealth gap in the Republic. Small landowners lost everything and fell into debt, poverty, and enslavement. Because remember, one of the things that could happen to you in ancient Rome, if you couldn't pay off your debts, you would have to sell maybe your family and then maybe yourself into slavery. Many impoverished farmers who'd lost all their land and everything they had streamed into the city of Rome. There was a grain dole in the city of Rome. You know, the mindset is at least they would be fed, but... It meant the city of Rome was flooded with impoverished, disaffected farmers with a chip on their shoulder, and many joined up with populist politicians who enforced their agendas through mob intimidation. <clears throat> Clodius, looking at you. Our girl, Fulvia, queen of the street gangs. Right. <laughs> Obviously, they're a bit later in the story, but, you know, the stage is being set for them. That's right. It didn't come out of nowhere. This dynamic was fueling violence in the streets of Rome and a massive wealth gap. And meanwhile, the fearsome Roman latifundia machine, already in existence for hundreds of years on Sicily and in the provinces, began to metastasize in the heart of the Italian countryside itself. We discussed this system in their episodes in the first two servile wars, so go back and listen to those if you want all the gory details. So Sulla began redistributing all this newly available land in the Italian peninsula that had suddenly been emptied out because of war and prescription. One of the other things that was happening at this time to empty out the Italian countryside was that able-bodied men were being conscripted into the army at very large rates as well. And in the next few paragraphs, you're going to see where they were going and why they were being conscripted. So at this time, Sulla handed out land to his rich friends, and his rich friends found themselves in need of workers. It could take as many as 30,000 enslaved people to run a latifundia. The entire Italian peninsula consisted of 6 million people around this time, and about 2 million, or one-third of these people, were enslaved. That's one in three. That's the same ratio we saw on Sicily during the First and Second Servile Wars. Mm-hmm. So... According to Appian, quote, the rich used persuasion or force to buy or seize property which adjoined their own, or any other small holdings belonging to poor men, and came to operate great ranches instead of single farms. They employed slave hands and shepherds on these estates to avoid having freemen dragged off the land to serve in the army, and they derived great profit from this form of ownership too, as the slaves had many children with no liability to military service and their numbers increased freely. For these reasons, the powerful were becoming extremely rich, and the number of slaves in the country was reaching large proportions. While the Italian people were suffering from depopulation and a shortage of men, worn down as they were by poverty and taxes and military service, and if they had any respite from these tribulations, they had no employment, because the land was owned by the rich who used slave farm workers instead of free men. Okay, so let's break this down for a second. So number one, we've got this problem of the rich now own all the land. They are not interested, Jenny, in employing freedmen. Let's be clear. They are not interested in paying any of their workers. They want you to work on their farm without being paid. That's what they want. That's the offer on the table. No, they're not. Number one, they're not interested in paying any of their workers. But number two, if they were interested in a form of labor where they gave you some kind of payment, which they're not, they have a problem, which is that 
freedmen can be conscripted by the Roman military. So free men. There's also a term freedmen, which is a person who is freed from enslavement, but who doesn't enjoy all of the benefits of citizenship. And this changes throughout the history of Rome. So it's a little complicated saying who has what privileges when. But freedmen, let's assume these were poor men who were not enslaved. These wealthy landowners, these slave owners, they were not interested in paying any kind of wage because their workers could be taken away from them at any point in time to fight in the wars that were raging in Rome. And not just in Rome. We're going to get to the wars next. So this is a massive problem because there is no work for the Italian people who are able to work for wages. So they now have to stream into cities. They're forming a massive refugee problem. And the countryside has now gone from being, you know, a place where you could own land and have a farm and make a living to these large-scale latifundias, these large-scale plantations that rely on the labor of enslaved people. The aristocracy won't hire you, number one, because they're cheap as fuck. Number two... Because if they hire free people to work on their farms, those people could be called into conscription at any time, whereas enslaved people are not subject to conscription. Yeah. So you're getting a picture of what the countryside looked like and what was happening because everything right now was absolutely awful for everyone unless you were the aristocracy. But only if you're a friend of Sulla. Right. If you're not a friend of Sulla, your head might be hanging in the rostra or you're going to have to give up your wife and lose all your shit. Like, best case scenario. So, (laughs) God! I mean, still better than it is for everyone else. This is just a fucking crap sack world, Jen. It really is. Everything about the system that we're talking about has long-reaching effects into our present day. Yes. And I just want to pull something else out of that quote here, Jen. Did you notice how Appian mentioned shepherds? He did. And do you remember what it was about shepherds that we learned during the Servile Wars? Before we entered the crap sack reality of the Servile Wars, (laughs) when I pictured shepherds, I guess I pictured like nursery rhymes and Little Bo Peep and lambs frolicking in the grass with butterflies everywhere. What I always pictured, Jenny, was like the biblical image of shepherds who were watching their flocks at night. All the Christmas songs talk about how the shepherds were watching their flocks at night. It's so peaceful. It's so idyllic. So peaceful. And if you grew up religious, your school might have had a Christmas pageant. It's possible one of your brothers, both of my brothers, were shepherds and they had to wear the bathrobe and the whole outfit with the crook. So, I mean, that's kind of the image. So nice they got a bathrobe. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that's the image that I always had as a kid was like shepherds were peaceful. And, you know, there's a lot of Christian iconography that comes with shepherds. And we're going to spoil that for you right now. We're going to give you the gritty reality of shepherds here, okay? We met the shepherds during the First and Second Servile Wars. They were a giant problem on Sicily where Latifundia owners basically didn't give their enslaved shepherds clothes or food or any basic necessities. They did give them, like, weapons, or maybe they just were expected to fashion their own weapons out of things they found in the forest. I don't know. Anyway, they just basically turned them out in the mountainsides to tend to the flocks and told them, you know, if they wanted food, if they wanted clothes, if they wanted basic necessities, they could just take them from local travelers or the community. So the shepherds on Sicily became armed gangs of bandits who roved the countryside, robbing and enacting violence. So basically in Sicily, you couldn't go anywhere without a lot of armed guards. Like it really wasn't safe to be in the countryside, in the woods. The shepherds were robbing people, not just on the roads, but in poorer communities that didn't have walls or more isolated farmsteads. Like you were really vulnerable to shepherd-based violence in Sicily around the time of the first and second servile wars, especially if you didn't live in a walled town or have enough money to have like a security force. So 
Anyway, by the time of the Third Servile War, which is the Spartacus War, the shepherds were starting to be a problem not just in Sicily, but in the Italian countryside, making life even worse for any family farmers who were trying desperately to hang on to their land. So between the poverty and violence in the countryside and the city, the massive wealth gap, widespread enslavement, and civil unrest, the Italian peninsula was a pot waiting to boil over. But internal problems weren't the only problems Rome was dealing with at this time. Spartacus's rebellion came at a time when Rome was dealing with wars on almost every front in the Mediterranean. After the civil wars, a Roman general named Sertorius found himself on the wrong side of the new administration. He had sided with the Marian faction, managed to personally piss off Sulla during the civil wars, and also managed to piss off the populist government that took hold after Marius died but before Sulla took over as dictator for life. Sertorius managed to piss off everybody personally. That's the kind of guy he was. Oh, man after my own heart. <laughs> he just wasn't, he wasn't very tactful, let's say. So through various hijinks, which we're not going to go over in this episode, but which probably merit their own mini so because they're fascinating, Sertorius got his non-tactful ass sent to Spain as a pro-praetor or an ex-praetor who still had permission to have control of an army, I guess. And that was a mistake because Sertorius decided he was going to build up his power base in Spain and then challenge Rome as the sole inheritor of true Marian ideals. Sounds about right. So the story of Sertorius, like we said, is a fascinating one in which there are magic deer. There is a magic white deer sacred to Artemis. Sertorius gets his own people who believe in him. He's got his divine sign. The deified Sertorius, if you will. Yeah, he's got a divine mandate, which you know how those go. All of them did this. I mean, Eunice did it. Spartacus did it. Sertorius did it. They've all got a god that they answer to, which is why people follow them. Mm-hmm. So... You know, if you want us to do this episode, let us know on the Twitters or the Instagrams. Just let us know. Magic deer, you guys. Magic deer. But essentially, his actions destabilized Roman rule in Spain. He was a giant trash fire. Another war broke out. Sertorius had an army. He had the support of some of the tribes in Spain and northern Africa. And he sometimes had the help of Cilician pirates, but sometimes not because those Cilician pirates were tricksy devils. They were. They had their own agenda. They were your ally as long as you were paying them the most out of everyone paying them. Look, they gotta eat. Right, Cilician pirates got a Cilician pirate, Jen. To be honest, guys, the Cilician pirates were real assholes. So, from 80 to 73 BC, he led a rebellion against Rome in Spain, northern Africa, and across the Mediterranean. He was a problem that Rome urgently had to deal with. And then there were those Cilician pirates. Have we mentioned the pirates? So we've talked about the Cilician pirates several times before on the podcast, including in the very first minisode we ever did, which is Pompey and the Pirates. But this is another story where they become critical players. The Cilician pirates ravaged the Mediterranean during the late Republic, and they were kind of a necessary evil to the Romans because they helped fuel the slave trade, capturing merchant ships at sea, selling most people on the boats into slavery. And if they happened to have, you know, an aristocrat on the boat, they would ransom that guy off to whoever will pay the most for him. This was a problem that both irritated the Romans and fed the Latifundia machine. So they kind of wanted to keep it going. Yeah, because, you know, have we mentioned that the ancient world is the worst? I seem to remember that we have mentioned that, Jen. Oh, good. I just I wanted to make sure that like we weren't letting people think that it was like this bastion of democracy where everything good came from. Or like, you know, just a place where shepherds frolicked in the fields and shit. Had this lovely pastoral image. Right. Forget it. Forget it. It's a no. crap sack world. 
It's awful. So the Salishian pirates plundered and looted seaside communities and took people into bondage. And as long as they were able to supply the ancient Roman Latifundia machine with slaves and kept their attacks on land, mostly away from Italian shores, the peninsula, then the Romans essentially allowed them to get on with things because supply and demand and the worst. It started to be a problem when the Cilician pirates started mocking the Roman aristocracy, and I'm not joking about that. It was the mocking, really. <laughs> it really was. That, that is what it was. <laughs> there were a few times that Rome made some attempts to fix the pirate problem. But these didn't really work. It wouldn't be until 66 BC when Pompey was charged with eradicating the pirate problem in the Mediterranean that their campaigns of terror would come to a sort of end. And this takes place after the Spartacus Rebellion, and it actually took Pompey just one month to do this. You just have to give Pompey credit here. Like, dude gets shit done. There's a reason he was named the Teenage Butcher. He wasn't a teenager when this happened. He was like in his 30s, but he had been general ing since his teenagerhood, and he was referred to as the Teenage Butcher. Great times. Great times. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point in our story, the city of Rome is a powder keg. The Italian peninsula is racked with starvation and slavery and shepherd-based violence because God handed to the shepherds. They, they know how to bring the violence. Because apparently that's a thing. <laughs> Sertorius is burning shit down in Spain and elsewhere, and the Mediterranean is crawling with pirates. Surely that's enough problems for one republic. Right, Jenny? No, that's really just the background. Yeah, because here's the thing. While all this was going on, Mithridates of Pontus declared war on Rome. So the Mithridatic Wars started in 88 BC, right at the end of the social wars and the beginning of the civil wars. This was going on at the beginning of the civil wars, so it was going on at the same time. And there were several wars, but we're kind of condensing it into the simplest possible way to understand it. Right. They raged on, on and off, for 25 years. Until 63 BC, and we don't have to go into too much detail here, but we do need to know a few things because to understand who Spartacus was and how he was able to lead his rebellion, we have to understand the political climate around him. You have to understand the waters in which he swam. And the climax of that political climate was the Mithridatic Wars. So Mithridates IV, also known as Mithridates Eupater Dionysus, which was a name he gave himself. Also known as the Poison King. Check out Adrian Mayer's incredible book about Mithridates. That's right. So this dude would be known as one of ancient Rome's most effective and intractable enemies. He was the king of Pontus and Anatolia, altogether a region on the southeastern shore of the Black Sea, around where Turkey is today. And Mithridates' kingdom was not part of Rome at this point. It was independent, but Rome had a presence nearby, and at first, Mithridates was pretty friendly with Rome. The trouble started when Mithridates had a border dispute with one of his neighbors, the kingdom of Bithynia. Rome had troops in the area because it was protecting, quote-unquote, the interests of the nearby Republic of Rhodes, one of their allies. Occupying, maybe? Exactly. So Mithridates and the king of Bithynia asked the Roman Senate to decide their border dispute. And Rome sided with Bithynia and Mithridates, who had been an ally of the Romans. He was okay with the decision. I mean, he was kind of cool with it. He asked... He asked a non-biased third party to decide the dispute, and they decided in favor of his enemy, and he was like, all right, cool, I'm just going to abide by that. Because Mithridates is a reasonable guy, okay? And then the Roman soldiers did something that is just totally baffling, and I don't understand it. Apparently, the Senate had no control over their soldiers in the field, and the officers took one look at Pontus and the riches of Anatolia and thought, hey, we could just go ahead and plunder that, right? 
Well, the Senate said, no, you cannot absolutely under no conditions do you plunder. They had sat these guys down and said, look, no plunder. That's the rule. Yeah, but... Put it out of your mind? Forget it. But here's the thing. You're back in Rome. I see the gold. I want to go for it. Stop thinking about the plunder. Stop it. The plunder. Nope. Nope. We are not in favor of plunder. Stop it. But I want shiny, shiny plunder. Bad soldiers. Bad. Well, you're not here. You're not my real dad. You're <laughs> not my real dad. I mean, that's basically how it went, right? They decided that the Senate was not their real dad and... <laughs> no hardships to step-parents. We don't know why they decided this. The Senate had said that the soldiers were really only allowed to attack Pontus if Mithridates decided to wage war on Bithynia. Mithridates was being super annoying and he was not even twitching in that direction. He had zero interest in making war on Bithynia. So the officers and soldiers, they really wanted a war. They really wanted to get to blunder because... They wanted Pontus's stuff. So they instigated Bithynia to raid Pontus and maybe give Mithridates a little um, encouragement, shall we say. And Mithridates took that bait because he had to defend himself. And as you can imagine, this escalated into the first Mithridatic War, which lasted from 88 to 85 BC. And this is a vast oversimplification because this is our podcast and that's what we do. We vastly oversimplify. So anyway, Mithridates had a lot of allies, and he hired a lot of mercenaries in his war, and one of those was the Medi, a Thracian tribe that may have actually been Spartacus's tribe. They sided with Mithridates, fought against the Romans, and went on to loot the oracles of Dodona and Delphi in Greece during the First Mithridatic War because they are Thracians and that is what they do. As you can imagine, the looting of these sacred oracles was a huge affront to the Greeks and the Romans, and a certain Roman dictator, <coughs> Sulla, wanted revenge. During the Second Mithridatic War, which we are not including the reasons why Mithridates did a second one, but just imagine that he's still mad. He's still mad. This is still a grudge match. Mithridates is still mad. So now there's a second Mithridatic War, which lasted from 83 to 81 BC. So during that time, Sulla ravaged the land of the Medi in revenge for what they did to the oracles. And we know very little about what happened here, except that the Medi's lands were destroyed by the Romans in retaliation. And that's basically all we know. That's all we know. It's like literally a one-line quote. But we can make some qualified guesses. We're going to make some assumptions and conjecture. We're going to write some very, very informed fan fiction right now. Historical fiction. It's not even fan fiction. It's historical fiction. Historical fan fiction. Right. I mean, sure. So we can assume that many of the Medi were taken into slavery, including their warriors, men like Spartacus. And we know that once the Romans restored Roman order, the Medi were loyal to Rome. That's now the company line. We are loyal to Rome and that is it. So this probably means that the Romans installed someone friendly to them to rule the Medi and do whatever the fuck the Romans told him to do. That was a thing they did a lot. They did this a lot when they had rebellion, particularly in Thrace. I'm sure this happened in other places, but obviously my research at this point in time has been in Thrace. Well, it happened in Gaul. It happened in Britain. Like, it happened in places where there were tribal enemies of Rome. Once they conquered a tribe, what they would frequently do is install their own guy or maybe someone from, you know, a neighboring tribe or someone from the same culture who was loyal to them to rule that tribe. Exactly. And that's what happened here. 
So during the Third Mithridatic War, which happened from 75 to 63 BC. So this is the Third Mithridatic War. So imagine Mithridates is really still mad. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why this happened. And when Jenny writes that epic arc on Mithridates and you get to realize what a cool badass he was, you'll know why. <laughs> he was mad. When Jen writes the arc about Mithridates, <laughs> we talk about all the poisoning. It'll be amazing. So anyway, this war started just two years before Spartacus's rebellion. And the Medi this time fought on the side of the Romans. They were included in the Roman auxiliaries and fought alongside the Roman legions. The ancient sources tell us that Spartacus was part of the Roman auxiliaries. Probably, we can assume, fighting against Mithridates, although we don't know that for sure. If this was the case, the Medi would have definitely rankled at the thought of fighting their old allies. They would have also been unhappy to fight alongside their long-standing enemies, the Romans who had ravaged their land just six years ago. It had not been a long time. No, these are still really fresh wounds. And even for hardened mercenaries and warriors like the Thracians, fighting as an auxiliary was no easy task. Auxiliary soldiers were tribal allies or, you know, a lot of the time recently conquered people fighting in the Roman army with their own equipment and according to their own customs and following their own tribal leaders, but under Roman orders. And they were often given the tasks that nobody else wanted to do. Sometimes this might mean guarding the camps or forts, but often what it meant was serving on the front line of battle. They were basically cannon fodder. Yeah, or ballista fodder. There were not cannons back then, but you know what we mean. Auxiliary soldiers were sent into battle first ahead of the Roman legions and often faced huge losses. Even skilled warriors like the Medi and other Thracian tribes were not immune to this. This happened to Alaric of the Visigoths, remember? This is why he invaded Rome. This was, you know, the slight that spurred that because when he was fighting the Battle of Frigidus on the side of Stilicho, he was sent in basically as cannon fodder and lost half of his force because of that and felt that he had been really mistreated. Yeah, well, he had been. Right. Auxiliaries also were paid about a third of what a legionary was paid, even though their jobs were more dangerous. Auxiliaries also were not Roman citizens, so they had none of the rights or protections that their legionary counterparts had. In short, being an auxiliary sucked. Being a Medi auxiliary, fighting against people who you sided with in the previous war and fighting on the side of people who had fucked over your land and probably killed a bunch of your family six years ago, had to really, really suck. At this point in time, the Medi's unit would have been commanded by a respected leader from their tribe, potentially someone like Spartacus. This leader would interface with both the Medi troops and the Roman commanders. He would be someone everyone trusted, someone who is able to keep the auxiliary together. Again, my fan fiction head says, Spartacus, there's no evidence of this. Yeah, we have no idea if that was true, but we like to believe it. It makes a better story, doesn't it? But there's absolutely no evidence that's the case. Serving in the Roman army in any capacity wasn't for the faint of heart, because the Romans took military service very seriously. There were terrible punishments meted out for even the smallest infractions. Fall asleep on the job? Death. And not just death, it was generally a death by either being beaten or stoned to death by your own unit. And like the point of that was that if you fell asleep on your watch, you would be beaten or stoned to death by your own unit because your sleeping on the job could have cost them their lives. So desertion, actually leaving your post, unsurprisingly also carried a very heavy penalty. Jenny, can you guess what that would be? Um, was it death? It was death. The ancient sources tell us that Spartacus deserted his post. Why did he do this? We don't know. But we do know that Spartacus would have been aware that deserting his post would result in a death sentence if he was caught. 
We also know that an honor-bound Thracian would probably have to have a good reason for leaving his post. That's the hope. I mean, it's a little confusing because if he did leave his post, why would he have been sold into slavery and not just killed? I don't know. There's so much we don't know. And the source that we have is Plutarch. The source we're using right now is Plutarch, who's working off of Sallust's account of the Spartacus War. There's a great book of primary sources by Brent D. Shaw called Spartacus and the Slave Wars. The book is only about maybe 200 pages total. 160 pages are about the first two servile wars. About 20 pages are actually about Spartacus's war, and that's being generous. The rest of it is all just where it's been cited, because there just isn't a lot of information. We have like 10 paragraphs in Plutarch, and he leaves a lot out, and he's writing like 150 years later, and he's working off this account from Sallust, which was contemporary to the time, but Sallust's account has been lost to history. So there's a lot of gaps that you can't fill in because probably Sallust told you more about it. Plutarch has a lot of inconsistencies and just weird stuff where you're like, wait, how did that work? We don't know. Plutarch was high the whole time he was writing. That's our theory. You like that flying ointment. I think the point here is that there are a lot of gaps and it's one of the many reasons why Spartacus in history and in legend and folklore continues to endure because there's a lot of stuff we don't know so we can kind of put these ideas onto him. Right, so we can conjecture all kinds of things but the truth is this part of his story is lost to history. We don't know so much. Spartacus might have had a very good reason to leave his post, something that the Romans maybe wouldn't want to glorify so much and that's why they left it out. All we know for sure is that Spartacus probably served in the auxiliary if you believe Plutarch and for some reason he deserted maybe. I mean I don't know Jen. Let's fan fiction this a little bit. What are some options? Maybe he just didn't get along with his commanding officers and peaced out because fuck those guys. Maybe he grew tired of fighting against the people that he'd sided with in the last war or fighting for the people who had ravaged his tribe's ancestral lands. Like that's a thing. Maybe he was tired of plundering innocent towns although probably not because he was a Thracian and that was kind of their thing. Yeah kind of was. (laughs) Yeah, so we don't even know if he really deserted. It's possible his unit was disbanded after suffering heavy casualties. If your unit suffered heavy casualties in the ancient Roman world, then you might be punished for poor performance. All the surviving soldiers could be stripped of their honors, and it's possible something similar might have happened to Spartacus's unit. And I think the thing to stress here is poor performance. If your commanding officers felt like you performed poorly, And that's why you had such terrible casualties. They would do this to you. I don't think they would do this if just like the odds were definitely not in your favor and you performed as well as you possibly could. I mean, we could sit here and make up stories about Spartacus all day. So it's also possible that Spartacus never deserted. He served out his time and was taken into slavery afterwards. The sources are so vague, so the conjecture is just endless. So... These were the problems plaguing Rome around the time Spartacus was taken into enslavement. Two major wars, both with highly experienced generals and seasoned armies. A pirate fleet that raided and plundered wherever they could and could be bribed to side with Rome's enemies. And massive inequality, poverty, violence, and unrest at home. So, Rome had a lot on its plate during the early 70s BC. I mean, understatement? I think that might be the understatement of the episode. Most of the experienced generals and legions had been sent to Spain and Pontus to deal with the armies of Mithridates and Sertorius. These armies were often harassed by pirates who were making a killing, selling people into enslavement and just being general pirates. And regular people caught in the crossfire of these warring armies were being taken into enslavement at a record rate. 
the world was a shit show. It was into this tire fire that Spartacus found himself being taken into enslavement. This has turned very grimdark, this whole this whole podcast. Guys, can you see? This is where I've been for so long. <laughs> I have spent most of quarantine just in this place. It's why I have literally bought like 30 plants and turned my living room into a garden. <laughs> Jen had to balance out the grimdark in her life. So <laughs> let's turn our attention, shall we, to the region that the Romans called Thrace. The place Spartacus was theoretically from, maybe. We don't know, but we think. As we've said many times, Thrace was not one country. It was a geographic area around, you know, vaguely Eastern Europe-ish, made up of about 200 tribes, many of whom did not get along with each other. And the Thracian territory was sandwiched in the middle of Rome's two wars at this time. They were right between Sertorius on the west and Mithridates in the east. Some of the Thracian tribes sided with Mithridates and were waging guerrilla-style battles with their neighbors. Some of the Thracians were allied, either willingly or unwillingly, with the Romans, and when they were allied with the Romans, that meant they had to pay crushing taxes and send their men to fight in Roman wars. The entire region was in turmoil. And during this turmoil, it was hard for many of the tribes to make a living and keep up with the Roman levies that were being enforced on them. Sure, Many of the Thracians were experienced fighters who were able to secure wealth via plunder and war, but they weren't always able to send that wealth back to their tribes. Because, you know, it didn't go very far, and also there wasn't mail back then. So how are you going to get it, you know, across all these battlefields and front lines to your tribe back home? We don't know. And auxiliary soldiers were paid a third of Roman legionnaires' wages. So the pay they were able to send back to their families wasn't enough to keep on top of the rising debt. And we mentioned this before. The reason that Thrace had so much wealth was they were able to do like a lot of mining and they were able to have these artisans because they had these warriors who could keep their borders safe. But these warriors were now not there anymore. So the lands were kind of open in a way they hadn't been before. Things were getting dire in some parts of Thrace. Some Thracian tribes, particularly the Getae, sold their children into slavery, sometimes for as little as the cost of an amphora of wine. Life was cheap and hard. Women and non-combatants who had remained in Thrace faced pressure on all sides. And I want to pause here and introduce you to one of the most crucial and forgotten people of Spartacus's rebellion, the Thracian lady. She has no name because why would she? Because we don't need to know women's names. Women are not important, Jen. They are not, but they should be. We're in the ancient world. That's what the ancient Roman writers frequently thought. We don't have a chip on our shoulder about this. It's fine. It's fine. I mean, other people will tell you the story of Spartacus and they might make her a love interest and they might make her like a very small part, but she was there at the beginning and she was there at the end. So she gets to be mentioned. I feel like I've seen a lot of Spartacus-themed media and stories. Frequently, I would say pretty much all the time, he does have a love interest, but I've never seen them use the Thracian lady specifically. I think the closest that I've ever seen is the Stars series, where she goes into slavery, but she's not in the Ludus with him, and she's kind of maybe generally has a connection to the gods, but it's not. she's not specifically identified as a priestess of Dionysus in that series. Exactly. So Plutarch is the only ancient source who mentions the Thracian lady. It's possible she is also in the lost passages of Sallust, but we'll never know. The Thracian lady was the consort or possibly the wife of Spartacus. As a priestess of Dionysus, she would have had certain privileges. The Thracian people set a lot of stock in the prophecies of their oracles and priestesses, and they revered women's religious authority. As we talked about earlier this season, Dionysus was one of the patron gods of Thrace, and priestesses were respected and well-treated. 
It's not clear if she met Spartacus at the Ludus or the gladiatorial school where Spartacus trained, or if she was married to him before and taken into enslavement with him. Plutarch says that she was from the same tribe as Spartacus and that they were in the Ludus together. And I don't think, I mean, I guess it depends how the passage is translated. Like, there is not much about her in Plutarch. And I imagine there was more in Sallust if he was getting it from there. And there's a lot of gaps. I don't know. I think if they were enslaved together, it's extremely unlikely that they would have gone to the same place because the ancient Romans were not particularly concerned with keeping families together when they were enslaved. This is true. There is an interesting thing here that I didn't mention. It was rare that gladiators had wives and children, but it wasn't as uncommon as you'd think because wives and children were another way for Lenistas to actually control their gladiators. If you were a gladiator and you had a family that you cared about, a Lenista wouldn't see that as a negative because now you have a wife and children who are leveraged and they can keep you loyal to your ludus and to them because you don't want any harm to befall your wife and children. We don't know if this woman was already in the Ludus or had been brought in at a different time but happened to be from Spartacus' same region. I imagine they wouldn't have a lot of freedom to pick people. Like the Ludus might have given a woman to a gladiator to keep him loyal and bind him even more firmly to the Ludus is what I'm assuming. As opposed to just letting them make their own relationships. I don't 100% know, but they were assholes, so I would imagine that it would be something like that. Yeah, it's possible they made their own relationship and Spartacus was such a good fighter that the owner of the Ludus was like, great, why don't you two live together and be married? Great, I like this. Now I have a chip I can use against you. Step out of line and we'll sell your wife and children into slavery. Well, not into slavery. We'll sell them to somebody else or we'll give them to a different gladiator because that's one of the horrible things that they might have done. So like I said, yeah, it's unclear if she met Spartacus at the Ludus or gladiatorial school where Spartacus trained or if she was married to him before or taken into enslavement with him, although we find this pretty unlikely. It's a lot more likely that the Thracian lady was someone Spartacus met in his Ludus, a woman he came to care for and who came to see the potential in him because together they fomented a rebellion that would make Rome quake. So we don't know what Sallust said about the Thracian lady or if Plutarch just invented her because everybody who reinvents Spartacus has to give him a love interest. But we at Ancient History Fangirl are going to go right out on a limb and say that the Thracian lady was a real person who'd been erased from history. And the fact that these two people came together and found each other would go on to change the course of the Roman Republic. Listen, I'm going to go ahead and believe this because why not? We might as well believe this if you believe anything else about the Spartacus story. So, once Spartacus was taken into slavery, he was brought to Capua. Capua was in the Campania, an area of southern Italy that had been particularly hard hit by the social and civil wars and the land redistribution that followed. Of the one-third of people who were enslaved on the Italian peninsula at this time, A lot of them were in Campania. It was a fertile ground for insurrection. It just needed the right leader. Hmm. Spartacus was sold to a ludus, or a gladiator school, owned by Lentulus Batiatus. We do not know much about Lentulus Batiatus. We just know that that was his name and that he owned the ludus. Spartacus was, according to Plutarch, quote, a Thracian from the nomadic tribes, and not only had a great spirit and great physical strength, 
but was, much more than one would expect from his condition, most intelligent and cultured, being more like a Greek than a Thracian. It's like he just came out and said he was articulate here. <laughs> Fucking asshole. It's like just casual racism, and thank you, Plutarch, for making everything that you recorded just put through that lens. Thanks, Plutarch, for the casual racism. So, prejudices aside... It was these qualities that made Spartacus a great gladiator. He was intelligent. He probably spoke Latin and some form of Thracian tribal language. Maybe more than one, I don't know. Spartacus was experienced in battle and he was strong, probably over six foot. Thracians were physically much bigger than Romans. The Romans were kind of (laughs) weenies. And it's probably safe to say Spartacus was a looker because Lenistae didn't buy men to be gladiators who weren't hot enough to inflame the crowds. I mean, occasionally they did and just put a helmet on them, but you know. So Spartacus was accustomed to the harsh life in the Thracian mountains. He was familiar with war. And very shortly after he arrived at the Ludus, he met a woman who, as we've said, would change his world. Spartacus arrived at Batiatus's Ludus and met his fellow gladiators. And this is really important. Most of the gladiators at Batiatus' Ludus would have been from many different tribes. Lenistae were very careful not to have too many gladiators from the same tribes. This was because they were terrified that the gladiators would cling to their tribal loyalties above their loyalties to their Ludus and be impossible to control. As we discussed in How to Train Your Gladiator, part of the process of training a gladiator involved some light, in quotation marks, brainwashing. Just a touch of brainwashing. It was full-on brainwashing. This was a cult. I've had enough wine to clearly say this was a cult, and what they were doing was breaking down people and making them loyal to their cult. So in order to have a gladiator who was loyal to your ludus or cult, you had to break them down and remove their tribal loyalties and identities and force them to accept their status as a trained warrior and killer Loyal only to you and your school. I mean, cult, cult, cult. You're in a cult. Call your dad. Yes, my favorite murder. We love you. You had to mold a disparate group of people, possibly people who had been ancestral enemies on the outside, into a brotherhood of men who valued their fellow brothers above all else. When Spartacus met his fellow gladiators, they were from a variety of backgrounds and tribes. There would have been gladiators from Gallic, Celtic, German, Syrian, Scythian, and North African tribes, and a lot of people in Spartacus's group would have been non-white. Even the Thracians themselves, there was a, a stereotype about how they were red-haired and blue-eyed in the ancient world, but the Thracian territory was so extremely diverse that I don't think it's likely that all the Thracians were white either. I completely agree. I think the really important thing when people think about Spartacus's rebellion is they think about it as being sort of this homogenous rebellion. It was not. It was not. It would have been racially and ethnically and culturally diverse. And one of the things that I have been thinking about lately was I don't think I've ever seen Spartacus portrayed by a non-white actor. He could have been non-white. I mean, the evidence that we see here for the reason he may be portrayed as white or Mediterranean is that Plutarch line of he was more like a Greek than a Thracian. But we don't actually know. We talked about this in the Thracian episodes, right? Their territory bordered on Scythian territory. It bordered on Middle Eastern territory. Spartacus could have been non-white. We don't know. We see back through generations that Thracians had red hair and blue eyes. We see them first mentioned in the Iliad that way. Does that mean that's how they looked? No, the land was so vast, we don't know. So there could be a great adaptation of Spartacus waiting to be made where Spartacus is not white and history would back you up. So anyway, so when Spartacus met his fellow gladiators, they were from a variety of backgrounds and tribes. 
There would have been gladiators from Gallic, Celtic, German, Syrian, Scythian, and North African tribes. It would have been a very diverse group. And many of these people would have deep-seated tribal rivalries with each other. They might not have spoken all the same language. They would have been very unlikely to get along outside of the Ludus. We think that many of these tribes had a strong dislike of Thracians. There was a stereotype about Thracians being brash and unruly and prone to outbursts and hard to control. And part of me thinks that this stereotype actually dates from the time of Spartacus. So I don't know if it would have been in place before his rebellion, because I feel like the older stereotype is the one about the Thracians being lazy. And again, that was a Roman stereotype, not necessarily one that the Celts or Germans or Gauls would have had. So we don't know if the tribes actually disliked the Thracians. We don't know. We do know that all of these different tribes and people had very strong opinions of how they saw the world. And sometimes these opinions were based on tribal divides. Remember, Thrace was huge. Two Thracians from different tribes in the same ludus might hate each other. Yeah, but also Gauls who interacted with one tribe of Thracian might feel very differently about Spartacus's tribe of Thracians. We don't know. And it's a thing that the Romans exploited. Inside the ludus, all of these tribes, these disparate tribes, were brothers in arms because that's how the brainwashing worked. And it was this very system that was the undoing for Batiatis because inside the walls of Batiatis's ludus, these men became a family and as a family, they were able to do the impossible by working together. They were able to escape their ludus and wage war across the Roman countryside. But how did he do it, Jen? How did he do it? How did Spartacus manage to get so many different people to his cause? He did it with sex. <laughs> Spartacus had the help of his Thracian lady. She was a priestess of Dionysus. And Dionysus... Orgies. Dionysus was the god of orgies. <laughs> and he was a god that many of the enslaved people knew in one format or another. That's right. Dionysus was a wandering god whose legend had crossed paths with lots of different religions and cultures. He was worshipped in one format or another across the ancient world, from India to northern Europe. Dionysus, as we mentioned earlier in the series, was the god of wine, which, you know, literally Jenny and I are behind right now. <laughs> Prosecco and wine and sparkling wine <laughs> and champagne. He was the god of orgies and religious ecstasies. And he was the god of the underdog, of the enslaved people and revolutionaries. So Mithridates and Pontus, who at the time was currently rebelling against Rome, still rebelling, minted coins which pictured himself as Dionysus. He also took Dionysus as his patron god. That was such a calculated move. Rome had already had problems with Dionysus on the Italian peninsula. The worship of Dionysus had been outlawed by the Senate over a hundred years ago by now for fear of what had happened at these Dionysian rites. Rites that were run by women! Oh no, women are in charge! And these rites allowed women to have control over the minds of impressionable young men. Oh, we can't have that. Oh, heavens to Dionysus. I clutch my pearls in horror. Rites where freedmen, slaves, women, and aristocratic young men all gathered and did who knows what. But my bet is on orgies, because that's always the answer. The answer to all your questions is orgies. <laughs> And also possibly changing wills and plotting to redistribute wealth and overthrow the social order. But let's be honest, a wash first and then orgies. Codus says wash your junk. My husband surprised me with a necklace with Dionysus on it. It's an ancient Roman coin necklace and it's actually this coin. It's Mithridates of Pontus as Dionysus. So Spartacus's Thracian lady used her collateral as a priestess of Dionysus to create his legend. 
According to Plutarch, quote, They say that when he was first taken to Rome to be sold, a snake was seen coiled round his head while he was asleep, and his wife, who came from the same tribe and was a prophetess subject to possession by the frenzy of the god of ecstasy Dionysus, declared that this sign meant that he would have a great and terrible power, which would end in misfortune. This woman shared in his escape and was then living with him. So this is basically the extent of the entire Plutarch quote about her, isn't it, Jen? I think that's probably about it, but historians have extrapolated quite a lot from this. I'm not sure if she appears later on when they talk about the unification of people. All of Plutarch talking about Spartacus is like three pages. The reason we talked about Dionysus so much is because the Thracian lady was a priestess of Dionysus, and we want to know what that was like. And what we found was that actually a lot of people followed Dionysus because he was the religion of enslaved people and the lower classes. It was actually a worthwhile journey to go on. And Dionysus was so widespread across the ancient world that it was really, really important that we understand that. Yeah, because this would have been a god that had a unique ability to unite all of these disparate people in this ludus. Not every god could do that. So the Thracian lady worked her magic. She linked her man Spartacus with Dionysus, and we imagine her, because we are also extrapolating, we imagine her telling every enslaved person in the Ludus who would listen that Spartacus was destined for great and terrible things. He was blessed by the gods. He was going to do something wonderful. He was the kind of person who could end their misfortune and bring holy fire down upon their Roman oppressors. With her at his side, Spartacus had something that no one else in the Ludus had, a direct line to the gods and a holy mission. It would have been easier for him to convince his fellow enslaved people and gladiators to follow him if he could convince them that he had a god on his side. And he had a cunning and clever and lots of moving parts plan that was absolutely fail-safe that was going to see them all to freedom. Right, Jen? In theory. (laughs) So sometime in the summer of 73 BC, Spartacus decided it was time to get the fuck out of Dodge. Get the fuck out of this, Ludus. We don't exactly know what brought this plan on, why he decided that now was the time. In the Gladiators A Day at the Games, which was our last episode that you listened to, we posit in our historical fiction way that it could have been a terrible contradiction that Spartacus witnessed amongst enslaved people who were killed for the enjoyment of the crowds. But the ancient sources do not give us a reason for why Spartacus decided that the summer of 73 was the right time to revolt. So we're just making shit up. We know that there was all kinds of unrest in Rome. It's possible he just saw his moment and took it. We can assume that Spartacus knew of other people warring against Rome during this time period, like Mithridates. He probably would have had a clear idea that many of Rome's forces were tied up fighting that war to the east, and that this was a particularly good time to plot and escape an insurrection. But the ancient sources don't tell us this. They're not interested in these facts. It's also possible that the Thracian lady had a sign from Dionysus that predicted that this This moment right now was the right time to rebel. So whatever the reason, this is how their escape went, according to Plutarch, who, bear in mind, was probably very high when he wrote this. Quote, 200 of them, gladiators, planned to escape. Remember, Spartacus had this very elaborate, foolproof plan. But their plan was betrayed, and only 78 who realized this managed to act in time and get away, armed with choppers and spits, which they seized from some cookhouse. (laughs) I don't know why it's worded like that. (laughs) I love how they're like, there were as many cookhouses, but this is just one of them. (laughs) Some cookhouse. I don't know. On the road, they came across some wagons which were carrying arms for gladiators to another city, and they took the arms for their own use. So 
It's important to remember that the punishment for enslaved people who killed their masters, we depicted this in our episode of Day of the Gladiatorial Games, and we've also talked about it a lot in other episodes. Enslaved people who slew their masters didn't just risk their own lives if they were caught. They risked the life of every slave in the household, usually, because a lot of them were punished as a group. They might all be crucified together. They might, they might be scourged, they might be whipped. There could be any number of punishments enacted on these people. Anyway, so you can see why Spartacus's plan was betrayed, because if they were caught, they might risk the life of every enslaved person in that household. The punishment for murdering your master was so severe that it was possible that another enslaved person, maybe with a family who was also in slavery, discovered the plan and decided to inform someone in an attempt to save their lives or the lives of their family. We don't know. We're writing some fan fiction again in our heads. It's really impossible to know who betrayed them or even if it was another enslaved person because Plutarch doesn't even say that. He doesn't say that. I mean, we're assuming it was probably an enslaved person because of the wording Plutarch has given us and who else would have known about the plan? But we don't know. Because that is what passive voice can do for you. It can (laughs) erase the person doing the thing. So now you don't know. The power of passive voice, kids. So whatever Spartacus's original plan was, it was betrayed and is now lost to history. And as a result, Spartacus had to improvise. He and his followers had to stage their rebellion before they were ready. They made do with kitchen tools and together they slaughtered their guards, killed their masters, and escaped to freedom. The kitchen tools, very big trope in these stories of Roman slave rebellions. And it makes sense because these are tools that enslaved people would have had ready access to. Because they wouldn't have just let the gladiatorial weapons be out and about. Like they probably kept those under lock and key unless gladiators were like training or fighting. Absolutely. So Plutarch gives us another enticing quote about what the rebels did once they were on the road and free. Quote, First, then, the gladiators repulsed those who came out against them from Capua. In this engagement, they got hold of proper arms and gladly took them in exchange for their own gladiatorial equipment, which they threw away as being barbarous and dishonorable weapons to use. So, as soon as they were able, the gladiators got rid of their old weapons and equipment and got new weapons. And this would have been really important. Like, there's always some important component to these servile war stories about how the rebels got their swords. Plutarch basically says that these weapons were seen as dishonorable and probably tools of the oppressors and their armor would have been more about showing off their bodies than actually protecting their bodies and all that stuff. But also, let's think about this. We talked about this in How to Train Your Gladiator and A Day at the Gladiatorial Games. Remember, you could have someone who was not a Thracian trained in a Thracian style, which was a mockery of how Thracians fought. So your weapon that you were comfortable wielding might have been a mockery of your new brother, these people you're rebelling with, their culture. So yeah, they threw those the fuck down. They were like, you're upset that I'm using this Thracian-esque sword that is not a real sword. I'm not going to use it anymore because we're together now. Yeah, but the other issue is that these weapons were show weapons. Like, they might not have been as high quality as the weapons used by the Roman army, because these weapons would have been made for fighting in spectacles, not necessarily made to survive a real battle with the Roman army. What the rebel army needed was strong, well-made swords, the kind of weapons that were made for killing in battle, not on the sands of the arena. And the only way to get those weapons was to steal them or to liberate or capture people who could make them. So Spartacus and his growing army of rebels made their way to a place where they could be safe for a while, a place where they could regroup, a place where they could begin their revolution, a place that just over a hundred years in the future would become known for one of the ancient world's most famous natural disasters, Mount Vesuvius. 
So that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks when we return to Spartacus's revolt and take you to a stronghold near Mount Vesuvius. In the meantime, you can find us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And check out our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can get access to exclusive episodes, including a brand new one on, I don't know when this drops, Jen, but I think this might be up by now, Jackasses of the Arena, Caligula. (laughs) Just in case you can't get enough gladiator goodness, we are now doing a Patreon series that focuses on the times emperors decided that they were gonna play gladiator for a little while. It's always a good time. And the one we're starting with is Little Boots. We're so grateful to our patrons. The influx of new patrons we've had lately has really enabled us to keep this podcast going through extremely difficult times that we're all facing right now. And we just have to thank you. Thank you so much. Your support is the reason that we're able to continue this podcast. And we'd like to thank some new patrons today, wouldn't we, Jen? We would. We're going to just apologize in advance because we're now at least half a bottle into our Prosecco. Two thirds. (laughs) Maybe almost done. We apologize in advance for mispronouncing your name, possibly drunkenly. PJ Shapiro. Ross Owen Quills. Chris Cash. Maggles. Just Maggles. Just Maggles. We love it. And Jonathan Davis. Thank you so much. If you're not into Patreon, but you'd still like to help, check out our website ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can kick us a few bucks through our Ko-Fi account and find a link to our amazing new merch. And if you're not able to support us financially, and we totally understand, we get it, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, or just share the news about our show to your friends, family, or anyone else you know who loves epic stories about the ancient world. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. 